Well, okay, good morning. It's so great to be with you. Thank you for following your pastor's instructions to a T. It's nothing like being loved because uh, someone told you to love me, so. <laughs> the series is manifesto and is based on the book of Colossians. Today we're going to take a look at Colossians 1:24 through Colossians 2, verse 3. Now, if you're already immediately asking, why wouldn't you just end this teaching at the end of chapter 1, one thing we'll learn together. The Bible was not written, these books were not written, these letters were not written in chapter and verse. They were actually written like you and I would write a letter. Much later and through the history of Christianity, chapters and verses were added so we could study Scripture the way we're studying it today. So that if I say, turn to Colossians 1.24, you could do that. So what happened is that these passages were not split up correctly. So Paul's thought that he's working with in the letter to the Colossians ends in chapter 2, verse 3. So as we, today we're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to end in chapter 2 with one of the most massive most amazing passages of Scripture. You probably hear this from pastors all the time because we spend all week in the passage and we know this is it. This is the most important one. And so we say this week by week. But really, for reals, this time, this one is... There's so much in it. We've got to get going right now. Chapter 1, verse 24. I am glad, says Paul, when I suffer for you in my body... For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians from prison. We know this already. So we know he's suffering. But more than that, we know that Paul is a completely broken, scarred, messed up human being from all of the abuse he's lived through. He makes it a point in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, to make sure that everyone knows what he's been through. So in that letter, if you want to have fun this afternoon, go read some horrifically awful things that have happened to Paul. He says, five times I was given this lash that the Romans or the Jews give for, for being a heretic. Three times they beat me with this rod that the Romans had for sedition and insurrection. By the way, the beating with a rod that he's describing in the second book of Corinthians is actually designed to break every bone in your body. It's not like a, oh, I'm going to give you a little beating with a little rod and stop talking about Jesus. It's a, we're going to break you completely so much so that when you're done, you're going to think twice before you ever talk about Jesus again. Why? Because there is a ruler and his name is Caesar the emperor. So he says, three times they gave me that beating. And by the way, because I know this is a kind of a medical community, right? How many of you work in some kind of healthcare? There you go. My point proven. Three of you raised your hands. <laughs> I had a taste of healthcare this last January, as I said the last time I was with you here. Uh, broken ribs, collapsed lung. It was awful. You know what made it better? Drugs. <laughs> I, I can see why there's a, there's a crisis, the opiate crisis. The minute they gave me that first taste of Dilaudid, is that what it's called? Diluted? Dilu oh, that was delicious. That took care of more than just the pain. It took care of all kinds of anxieties. 
I became a better husband, <laughs> a better father. Imagine that Paul's going through all of these horrible things. He's being, his, every bone in his body broken. There's no orthopedic surgeons to put him back together correctly. So he's broken, mangled up, and he's writing from prison. By the way, one time they tried to kill him. Capital punishment, he says to the, letter, to the Corinthians. They stoned me, past tense. They threw rocks at me to kill me. So when he talks about suffering, he knows what he's talking about. You and I talk about suffering. Most of us really have no clue about this kind of suffering. In no way is Paul saying that the work of Jesus on the cross is somehow incomplete, which is why he has to go through these sufferings to somehow complete the work of Jesus. I know that's obvious. I just want to say it in case any of you have read this and you've gone, why is Paul going through suffering? Maybe I should go through suffering too in order to somehow please God or somehow complete the work of Jesus on the cross. And in no way is Paul saying that. As a matter of fact, last week when you were studying with Pastor Tim, the, the first section of the chapter of Colossians where the hymn of the Colossians is found, the hymn of the Colossians ends like this. God made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. It is done. Suffering that we go through on this planet has nothing to do with completing the work of Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying. And we, we should never say that. What does Paul talk, why is Paul talking about this suffering then? Well, he has a, a really rich theology of suffering, an understanding that what he's going through is somehow making him be able to identify with the sufferings that Jesus went through. Also, he's not saying, I really like suffering. He's saying, I am glad for the suffering, or in other translations, I find joy in my sufferings for Christ. Joy and happiness are two different things. Happiness is the pursuit of the world. Joy is a virtue of the faithful. You can have joy in any kind of circumstance. You can have joy in lashings and in the rod and in being stoned and being beaten and in any other trial you're going through on this planet. You can have joy, says Paul, because joy is not dependent on your circumstances. It's dependent on who you know, on your hope, on Jesus, which is why he says in other letters, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's not afraid of anything. He finds joy in everything. Verse 25, we're gonna, we've got to keep moving. Am I okay? We're going? We're moving. Verse 25, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. God's entire revelation. Everything there's to know about God, Paul is claiming now, I am going to, to proclaim it all to you. That's my responsibility and my burden. Verse 26, this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. And here we're going to have to spend a few minutes, probably the bulk of our time together, really understanding what Paul means by this secret message and by this mystery that we find him talking about here. And if you're a good student of the Bible, you know this is not the only place where Paul talks about mystery and secret and, and being revealed to us and how he's revealing the secret. Here's what's going on. 
Paul is addressing head-on the Gnostic heresy that was taking place and had taken root in the Colossian church. In the first century, there was this proliferation, this massive growth of all of these movements that claimed to have special knowledge. Each of these different groups had this unique story or some unique god or demigod or some unique system or some unique like ritual or rite that you had to follow in order to gain access to meaning of life, salvation, all of the things that we understand Jesus gives us they had all of these ways of getting to this secret knowledge would lead you to salvation and the meaning of life. Historians like to sweep all of these movements, because there was a lot of them in the ancient Middle East. They like to sweep all of them into one umbrella. They call it the Gnostic movements. And Gnostics, it comes from the, word, the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge. And knowledge was central to all of these movements. Knowledge, they said, would reveal the mysteries and the secrets of life. Followers of the religious, the religious sects, they had two other things that are really important for us to know. One is that they had, they had a long list of rules they had to follow in order to get to the knowledge. They had a long list of rituals they had to follow. Some of them made sense, some of them did not make sense, that they had to follow in order to gain knowledge or get whatever the secret thing that was in there was. And then they had these leaders who were designated either by divine appointment or by their own, their own people, as the, like the ultimate holders of the knowledge and the secret. Does any of this sound familiar? By the way? Does any of this sound... And these people were trusted, and they, got, they gathered every week to, to hear from these leaders, give them the, you know, the secret knowledge. But what's interesting is that they would never quite get to the secret knowledge because the leader knew there is, there is no secret knowledge. <laughs> There's really nothing at the heart of this. I just have to keep this, you know, this aura or this sense that there's something at the end of your pursuit. And more interestingly, I think this is really fascinating, um, it created a real insider and outsider culture. You're insider if you have the knowledge, or you are at least included somehow in the pursuit of this knowledge, and there was a whole class of people who were outsiders. So when Paul uses the language of secret or mystery, that would have been extremely familiar to them. They would have known, yep, we know what that means, secret. We know what mystery means. We live with people who are constantly talking to us about this. Paul is doing this brilliant thing that he does all the time, becoming all things to all people. He's using their own game, the secret mystery world. He's using their own language, and he's about to drop this amazing bomb. The way Tim, that your pastor Tim puts it, Paul blows up the Gnostics. So violent. I'm going to say Paul comes with love and changes the message of the Gnostics. Tim, Tim says Paul, Paul blows up the Gnostics. You know this secret. Let's, let's find some practical applications. You know the secret. There's secrets everywhere. I was flying a couple of weeks ago in this airline that I will not say the name of. Let's just say we all need to remain united in our in our desire to love Jesus. Um, 
Some of you fly a lot, you know, you know the whole game. Um, small children, you, people with small children, you board first. If you're military, you board first. Uh, anyone who wants to may board first, except for all of you right there, standing right there, looking at you, Sam Lenore. And then they, call, they always call this special group of people with this airline. They go, those of you who are global services, and I know there's one of you or two of you here who are global services, you may board now before the masses board. On, on my second leg of this trip, I went up to the counter and said, I, I, I'm on planes a lot lately. I just want to know, how does one become global services? <laughs> the person, these are the exact words the person said to me. You don't qualify, you're invited. <laughs> how does one get an invitation to this secret thing? She didn't even answer. Like, there's some secret I'll never know. We live, with, we live with these secrets. Who is Victoria? And what is her secret anyway? <laughs> Don't you want to know? <laughs> I, I, grew up with, I grew up with two older sisters. I am the youngest and, and only male. Yes, I was privileged. <laughs> I, and those two, were, those two were evil to the core. And on the day of judgment, the brightest shining light will be Jesus, but the second one was, was, was going to be them burning. <laughs> I love you. I love you guys. You know, if you're watching, I love your manas. You're my sisters. I love you. These two had a club. They called it Club Hermanas. Because we grew up speaking Spanish. Um, and Club Hermanas met every day. They would shut the door to the clubhouse, their room, a.k.a. their room. They would put a sign outside that said, um, no boys allowed, which basically meant me. I'm like six, seven years old. I'm like, I, I'm alone when you guys have your club meetings. Can we hang out? Can I, how does one get into the club? This went on for like a year or two. Like, no, of course you don't belong in Club Hermanas because you're, you're a guy. I pleaded with them. Can it, how does one, what, is, what is happening in the club? Is, is the meaning of life being explained there? <laughs> the reason for existence? I, I went through this existential crisis, like I, I needed to know what was happening in the club, and I pleaded every day. I went to my parents, and I said, can you, can you either give me a club member that I can have a brother, or let, tell them that they have to let me into their stupid club? So one day they decided, we're going to let you in the club, but there's an initiation. <laughs> so whatever it is, I'm going to do it. So they set up their initiation in the room. This gets really creepy. They had a little table, a little candle. Oh, it's cultic. <laughs> and they had, a, they had a cup they had set up on the table. And, I, and they invited me, and I walked in, and they said, this is the initiation, Sam. You're going to be part of the secret club. You're going to find out the meaning of life. Everything, everything gets really good from, from here. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So what's in the cup? And they said, you must drink that entire cup full of chocolate milk. I said, well, that's, that's, are you joking? Is this, a, is this like a trial I have to go through? Because chocolate milk is delicious. So I said, no, you have to drink this, and then you'll be in. So I picked up this cup. And I began to chug it. Halfway through it, I realized, no, this is not chocolate milk. No, it's not. This is water from a puddle outside the house. 
do you see them burning now on the day of judgment? You see that now? I, I'm not saying I'm going to take great pleasure with the smell of wafting skin, skin burning on the day of judgment. I'm not going to, but you, you see it now. Um, and by the way, um, I get often asked, asked well, how, do you, how do you keep such a slender look? It's because of the parasites. <laughs> Oh, Tim, I'm making a mess out of your church this morning. I'm so sorry. It's the, it's the 9 o'clock. We're out. This is the funnest group. There was, a, there was a, a secret initiation that led to nothing, and Paul begins to expose all of the Gnostic movements for having all of these bizarre rituals and having all these secrets that lead really to nowhere. And here is what Paul does. It is so brilliant. He says, unlike your high priests and unlike your Gnostic sects, unlike your mystery religions, unlike all of the things that you've been exposed to that claim that there's some secret you've got to know in order to find meaning of life, in order to find salvation. I come bearing the good news that the mystery of the Christian faith is to be proclaimed freely, thoroughly, and throughout the whole world. And what is that secret? Not yet. I cannot tell you what secret is yet because Paul is going to reveal it himself. Verse 27, for God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you, Gentiles too. That is, the glory of the mystery lies not in exclusiveness, but in inclusiveness. It's not going to be only for the spiritual elites and the insiders who have special knowledge of this mystery. This, Paul says in verse 27, is for everyone. The benefits are for everyone. And this is the secret. Are you ready? Crosswalk, are you ready? I'm so excited. I'm excited for you, even if you're not. This is the secret, or the mystery, or whatever your translation chooses to render this, this Greek word. This is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this gives you assurance of sharing in his glory. Other translations, Christ in you the hope of glory. Oh, this, we should be on fire right now. There should be someone on the keyboard just doing runs. Someone running up and down shouting hallelujah in this place. No, we're not that kind of church. I get it. But listen, this is the secret. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is the secret. He himself is the answer to the human longing for redemption, for forgiveness, for love, for meaning. That is it. There's no secret handshake. There's no secret right. There's no cup of muddy water. It is ours. This Christ... This is the Christ that was preached just last week here. This Christ by whom all things and through whom all things were created, who is before all things, in whom God was pleased for all of God's fullness to dwell in the firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible God, who has, he who has primacy over all things, either in heaven or on earth, who is the head of the church and who will stand at the end of time and be the final judge and triumphal Lord 
this Christ in you is the hope of glory. Ugh. Love it. I know. Someone. I mean, is this not the, the gospel in, in a few words? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me, let me give you some things that we've made, the hope of glory, that are not the hope of glory, and that Paul is going to later in the book of Colossians begin to break down. The law in you is not the hope of glory. The, the law shows us where we've fallen short of the glory, but the law is not going to give us the glory. The law in you is not the hope of glory. The law restrains us. It keeps us from sin. It points out the sin in our lives. It promotes holiness, yes, but Christ in you is the hope of glory. Knowledge in you is not the hope of glory. Paul's life was not changed by what he knew, but by who he came to know, Christ. In you, the hope of glory. Church, in you is not the hope of glory. Or you in church is not the hope of glory. I'm going to proceed very carefully here. So I invited someone to church last week, and they said, nah, church full of hypocrites. I said, absolutely not. It's not full. There's room for you too. Plenty for you and your friends. <laughs> Church is good, and man, is this place good. It is so good. We see some people ask me, what is it about? Is it the singing? Is it? Yeah, the music is amazing, but really, it's all, it's the preaching of the gospel, Bible preaching. I mean, the fact that we... The Tim assigned me like half of a chapter of the Bible, and he said, get it all done in 30 minutes. We're, we're diving deep into Scripture. That is what's going on here. Church is good. Let me tell you what really is good about church, the fact that we get together and we remember who is in us, the hope of glory. But Church Incorporated, the business of church, is not the movement of Jesus. We need it. We need Church Inc., but when it hinders or becomes an obstacle to, depletes our energy or attention or our resources, it diverts our focus from the mission of God in the world, it becomes the central focus of everything that we do. Followers of Jesus just need to keep moving on. The Jesus community is necessary. I believe that. I believe that we need a community. We can learn doctrine in isolation, but we cannot learn to love well in isolation, can we? This place won't save us. Compliance is not the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. The church was born in suffering, in the nails and the splinters of the cross. We know that. And that, Christ in you, the one who died on that cross, is the hope of glory. One more word to make it super controversial today. <laughs> Watching the news the other day, someone introducing one of the candidates, one of the thrilling candidates. Who's going to, who's going to save us from poverty? L literal words, our candidate. Who's going to save the United States of America, our democracy? Our candidate. 
Who's going to, this person doing the introduction just filled with all kinds of adrenaline and craziness said, who's going to save the world? Our candidate. No, that's not true. <laughs> and the way we argue about our politics and our, whoever's going to be president next or whoever is president now or whoever's inhabiting the halls of Congress or whatever, we act, what we talk about it, we act as if that is the hope of glory. We should most definitely care. But here's the question. Is the next or whoever's president now going to make us better parents? Model husbands and wives. More loving, less greedy, less prideful. Is it going to help us? Is he or she going to help us manage our time better? Is he or she going to do something about that gopher in my backyard? Will we finally be the kinds of people that we need to be because of what's happening there? No. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Final word. Some time ago, um, early in my ministry, I met a young woman who, for lack of better Words, since you now understand the Gnostic movement, she was in a Gnostic cult <laughs> of sorts. Um, she had been told that the way, you, the, the, way, the, the, the way to glory was to, to go through all of these handshakes and behaviors. And, um, and so here's what happened at her church when she was young. At one, at one point, she was an early teenager. Um, a, one of these preachers came to her church and said, the the hope of glory is found this way. You begin to dress in a specific way. So her and her family went home, and they got rid of all their clothing, and they began to wear these things that are not, listen, this is not me judging people who dress uh, modestly. We need to be modest. You know, we got to be the people who, you know, any of you grew up in a time where you could tell who an Adventist Christian was from a mile away? Drab clothing and no adornment and just sad, dour looking. <laughs> I ate tofu for breakfast. <laughs> Don't feel joy. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with tofu for breakfast, by the way. But, um, and there, by the way, there's nothing wrong with being modest. Let's be modest. Let's be people who actually reflect the character of Jesus by the way we live and act and we dress in the world. But when you're told that is the hope of glory, there's something wrong with that message because it becomes oppressive. And it becomes something that judges you every day because it's the law in you, not the hope of Jesus in you. The next thing, you know how this goes for those of you who've been around. The next thing that went was the, the music. They were told the music is evil, get rid of all of it. And so they began to live their lives in silence. Because in those days, you know, you'd, some of you are way too young to know this, but if you spun the records backwards, <laughs> you would hear smoke pot, and then you would go and smoke pot, and that's... <laughs> that's a mystery hidden. <laughs> so... They were told, get rid of all music. Everything is contaminated. And they live their lives in, in silence. And so any, any, any music was a, a 
polluting their minds and the, the hope of glory was to live in silence. And, and then the, the food thing happened. You know, they were told this is the way you're supposed to eat. And they gave up everything except for, for things that were raw and right out of the, the ground. And um, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. There's nothing wrong with the way we listen to music, the kind of way that what we filled our minds with, by beholding, we do become changed. So we've got to be discerning about that. And the way we eat, let me tell you, we've got to eat better. We just do. Because it's better for us. And we're happier and healthier. But I ate an entire pizza on Tuesday. <laughs> Bronx pizza in San Diego. Delicious. Having eaten the entire pie, I felt horrible for a day. Just, ah, why do I do this to myself? But you know what I know for a fact? Jesus did not love me less because of that mistake. <laughs> he probably looked at me and said, why do you, why do, you do that to yourself? You did, eat the tofu. Pizza in me may not be the hope of glory, but it's not judgment upon me. God does not. Christ in me is the hope of glory. Christ in me is the hope of glory. And so one day I'm preaching this message to this young woman, and she hears me say she's dressed, you know, it's like 120 degrees outside, and she's dressed, hiding the, you know, the, the wrist can be really suggestive, you know, <laughs> you know. And she's, you know, and you, you can tell her life is just, there's no joy in it. And she hears me say something like this. Like, Christ in you, the hope of glory. No, 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 no. And I was reading to her from Ephesians, the other letter of Paul, where he says, from the foundation of the world, you were chosen to be redeemed by Jesus. I was like, no, that's, that, does not, that does not jive with the way I've been living my life, because um, she came up to me afterwards and said, the way I've been living my life is this. Every night before I go to bed, I... I go through all the ways that I know I offended God, and at the end of that prayer, I say, God, if you give me another chance tomorrow, I will not disappoint you. Oh, that is a horrifying way to live. When, in fact, the gospel good news is that there is no cup of muddy water, that there is no weird candle in a room with club hermanas or... There's no secret. Paul is proclaiming the secret. That is his move. The mystery is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The work of the cross is complete. Christ does the work in you. And that is the hope of glory. Eat better, yes. Listen to records only forwards, yes, whatever. Dress more modestly? Yes. One day, this, as we began to study the Bible, because she really wanted to know, got interested in the real gospel, we're going, one day she tells me the story. She says that, um, that her parents began to fast from Thursday evenings all the way until the coming of Sabbath the next day. And she was 13, 12 or 13 years old, and, and she remembers being so desperately hungry on Fridays that the coming of Sabbath for her was like a, yeah, you want to make a kid love Sabbath? <laughs> Starve them for 30 hours before the coming of Sabbath. <laughs> That'll be the uh, sweetest arrival of the Sabbath every week. One day, her and a friend who was also involved in one of these Gnostic cults 
They're sitting there at recess on a Friday morning watching everyone else enjoying their life, running, talking, playing, being a, being a kid. But the two of them were so hungry that you wouldn't have enough calories to make it through this day. So in their little minds, they thought, we'll just sit here. And one of them so desperately hungry went digging through her bag and found evidence of a previous life of sin, a little bag of Skittles, the little Halloween size with the little tiny ones, which means there was three or like five or six Skittles in it. She took it out and knew immediately, we're going to sin boldly today. They opened it and in tears, she says, in tears, we ate those Skittles knowing we are offending you, God. Skittles are not good for you. Most definitely, tooth decay, <laughs> diabetes problem, whatever. It just don't live off of Skittles. But that didn't, I mean, they didn't forfeit glory for eating Skittles. And they did not undo the work of Jesus on the cross by eating Skittles. And, and as she's telling me this story, she's crying, I'm bawling my And we're like, we, we've got to rebaptize you into the real gospel. And so we did. Here's the sweetest thing, because we're out of time. Sweetest thing. I told a bunch of her friends about this, and they went to Costco, and, and they bought Costco out of all these Skittles, and they poured them into a bucket, and as she was coming out of this water, there were, there were Skittles raining on all of us. <laughs> that was awesome. It was awesome. The, the, the sugar headache we all had later was awesome. what was even more awesome was seeing someone come alive at the good news Christ in you the hope of glory